When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. May God bless the reading of and the hearing of his word. Good morning. So, I have to tell you, when I looked at the scripture for today, I was like, yeah, no way. <laughs> Not happening. Um, so, I worked, wrestled with it all week. Yesterday, I texted Jen. I said, I'm not getting something here. I, I, I don't know. Can I do something more communion related? And she said, that was fine. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with that? Well, just so happens that Friday was Tom's birthday, and we went out to eat. We didn't go where we wanted to go. We ended up at Friendly's, which wasn't bad. Um, and I had the turkey dinner with the stuffing and all that good stuff. And it was kind of like a nice comfort food, you know, kind of cold, yucky kind of day. And yesterday, when I was still like, ah, I was thinking about that stuffing. And so I want to talk to you today about stuffing. Sometimes they make us cry. Then, what do we 
we do with that onion? Let's put it in. No, you have to saute it in butter. And you know what? Yeah, you do. And that's kind of like the trials that we go through. Our faith gets in some tight, hot spots sometimes. But when you saute the onion in the butter, it brings out the best of it. So, there we go. And then, it'll be pretty boring if it's bread and butter and onion. So we have to add some spices. Some salt, some pepper, some sage, and some poultry seasoning. And that reminded me of the richness and the flavor that all of the people Jesus interacted with. His disciples were all people we want to were also different, and we're also different, but we all bring something rich and flavorful to the relationship. Okay, so we're, we're pretty good now. We've got to have two other things here. We need some liquid to make it stick together. So, I have some water. Sometimes water or broth is better, but I have it, so. But water... baptism in there. And of course the other ingredient that's kind of important is egg. That's what really makes it together. And the egg reminds me of hope. At Easter we talked about new hope of the eggs and life that comes from the eggs. So I'm thinking, okay. So we've got a pretty amazing thing here when we have stuffing. We have our faith, we have our trials in faith, we have all the flavor that comes from being part of God's family, we have baptism, and we have hope. So stuffing is not just a side dish. It's a Next time you're making it and you're eating it, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, we thank you, and we thank you for those ways that you have with us in our lives. By giving us the and remember you and the bread of bread, by bringing us the waters of baptism, by giving us hope at Easter and every day. And we thank you for the seasoning you put in our life, the people that we meet, the fellowship that we have. And we thank you for the fruit of our faith. Help us to bring that fruit to the surface so that it can find life. Thank you. So we thank you for all you do in our lives. Lord, thank you for this time to hear from your word. Thank you that even though you don't actually pull any punches, um, you are a gracious and forgiving God slow to anger, and abounding in love. We pray that we will hear your heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Grant. All right, have you guys seen this optical illusion before? What is it? <laughs> it's two faces. It does look like a table leg. Two people. Is that all? Or 
face. Uh, I don't think they're kissing exactly. They are facing each other, right. So it's two faces facing each other. I actually had a better version of this, but um, we weren't able to get it to fit in the program to put on the screen. Um, you might be able to see it. Teeny tiny version from my paper. It looks a little bit, the shape in between the two faces looks a little more like a goblet in this version, um, which is significant. Anyway, did anyone not see that it's kind of a picture of two things? All right. Now, shift gears a second, take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Someone want to tell me what this passage is about? Divorce? Okay. Any other answers? Commitment? Okay. Two people becoming one? Okay. So, what's that? Go ahead. <laughs> the crappy things people do to each other. Yeah, frankly. Um, that. Yes. All right. So, I think we're going to find out today that like this image right here, um, sometimes, if this was the first time you saw this image, you might have only seen the vase or the, or the goblet, or you might have only seen the faces at first. And like the image, sometimes we come to the Bible and we only see one of the things that's really in there. Sometimes there is more, usually maybe, there is more in the, what the Bible is telling us than what it at first appears. So we might have wanted to skip this passage today. Actually, I kind of did want to skip this passage today. The passage after this is about the rich young ruler, and I've already talked about that here. And so it would have been much easier to just say, you know what, let's just skip this one. This is awkward and, and tough to talk about. Um, but you know me. I'm not afraid of a challenge. So um, so we are going to talk about this one today, and I think it's important to talk about it. I think one of the reasons why I might have wanted to skip it and why I'm frankly surprised that there are as many of you here as there are um, is because there are a lot of people here who have been touched by divorce. And Jesus says some things about divorce that sound kind of tough. And so like, do we really have to figure out that he might be saying something we don't really want to hear or consider. Um, we, it's really easy to get hung up on the specifics of this passage, and what happens when we do that is we, we come to the passage the way the Pharisees in this story come to their question, which is back from the Old Testament law. And what happens when we do that is we look at so Jesus says some things about divorce that are uncomfortable, and it divides us. First of all, it divides us. Does this passage even apply to me? I, myself, have not been divorced. Um, up until I was 40, I was single. So what does this have to do with me? On that basis, there are a lot of people in this church that this passage doesn't have anything to do with or doesn't anymore. Um, the other division that we can create out of a passage like this, if we get hung up on the specifics, is 
I did it right or I did it wrong. And then there's some people that can feel really like, well, you know what, I, I actually have been righteous about this. Um, and other people who can just feel super ashamed, depending on what side of the specifics you fall on. But I think there is more to this passage than what we frequently see. However, we are justified in thinking that this passage is about divorce because if you look, I looked this up, if you go and look up in almost every Bible translation, there is. Some Bible translations don't put headings, which is fine because they're not in the original text. Um, but almost every translation that has a heading, like a subject heading for a section of scripture, for over this particular passage, it will either say, divorce or teachings about divorce so of course you think this passage is about divorce there's the new living translation i noticed says teachings about marriage and divorce so they kind of broaden it a little bit and the new kingdom translation says a question about divorce which is a really smart way of heading it because it opens the fact that the question is specifically about divorce, but maybe the answer is about a little bit more than that. It might be more accurate to head this section, teachings about the kingdom through human relationships, or teachings about sexual brokenness. However, however we look at it, and we're going to look at it, hopefully by the time we get to communion at the end of this, we will see the goblet, the chalice, as well as the two faces. So what's the context for this passage that we're looking at? Jesus has been just with his disciples for a little while. We've been listening since the transfiguration, and we've been listening to him teaching them. And now the Pharisees, they moved, and now the Pharisees are back. And they are accidentally carrying on this theme. Jesus has been talking a lot about family relationships, and they don't know that, but they bring in this question about divorce. And they are back to their old tricks, which is trying to test Jesus. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And then when they don't like how Jesus responds to that, they say, they double down and they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? What kind of test is this? Usually, the Pharisees' tests are some kind of like, like when they brought the woman caught in adultery. If you said kill her, well, the Jews weren't allowed to. And if you said let her go, well, then he's contra uh, contradicting the Old Testament law. So there, there's usually some element of that. It seems kind of like what's behind this question is they are either trying to justify their own ungodly practices or they are trying to establish another basis of judging people. Or maybe they're even challenging Jesus' ability to talk on any issue because he's single. This happens to people in ministry when they're single a lot of times. What does this guy know? They're not, he's not married. Let's see, what does he have to say about this? It's like asking a person that never had kids how to raise kids. Um, so Jesus responds to them, kind of, don't be silly. Obviously, it wasn't a command. <laughs> they say, why did Moses command that a man give his wife? God didn't command it. God just knew you weren't going to get marriage right. But divorce is really only legitimate 
if there was unfaithfulness between spouses. If you divorce for any other reason and remarry, you're committing adultery. That's what Jesus is saying on the face of this. So we would be tempted to ask, well, what about, what about this situation? What about that situation? What about, because there are lots of reasons people get divorced, right? Interestingly, the, the Pharisees don't ask another question. The disciples don't ask any of those questions. They take what Jesus says at face value, and they decide the cost of marriage is too high. Yikes. Better not to get married then. Forget that. And then Jesus says some kind of awkward and mysterious things about eunuchs. I don't think I've ever heard any church teach about that part of this passage. Um, and so churches will usually skip over that part and, and oh, let's talk about the rich young ruler instead. It's easier to talk about money than sex. Um, so let's just move on. Really, what are we supposed to do with this? Just skip this? Or maybe we should figure out some loopholes so we can justify ourselves. No? Sounds like a politician. Okay. So I would say what we're supposed to do about this is focus on the chalice, the goblet, the blood of Christ. And how we're going to do that is by remembering the bigger context that this is in. Let me just say this. It is really, really, really important when we read the Bible, any part of the Bible, to take all of Scripture into account. Because all of it influences and explains all of the rest of it. And it is especially important to take into account the book, the specific book of the Bible that the passage you're looking at is in because God inspired that author and to highlight a particular theme or themes. So the context of this particular passage is the Gospel of Matthew. What would you, at this point, we've been talking about Matthew forever, so what would you say is Matthew's main theme in his Gospel? <laughs> I would say that Matthew's main theme is the kingdom of the heavens is near. And underlying that is this idea that God wants to bring people up to his own level, back to how God intended from the creation of the world, to be united with us, to bless creation, each other, and creation. And so one way of saying this, which we said when we talked about the transfiguration, is God wants to marry us. The church is supposed to be the bride of Christ. Lori and Matt Creek, who write about these kinds of things, say the purpose of marriage is to tangibly demonstrate God's marriage proposal to us, to our spouse, and to the world. So... The way that the people of God express either marriage or singleness, sex and gender, the way that the people of God express each of those things, all of those are intended to be ways of, in this life, of reflecting who God is and what God's will for human beings is. 
which is a deep, faithful intimacy for the purpose of blessing the world. Everything that we have seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew has been a different way of showing us how God wants to bring us up to his level. And since the transfiguration, we've been talking more and more in terms of family relationships, and Jesus is going to continue like wedding themes in some of his teachings from going on from here. We'll see this in the next few weeks. So if we ignore or forget this backdrop of the kingdom of heaven is near and the kingdom of heaven is God uniting with humans to bless each other and the world, um, we will miss the fullness of what Jesus is saying here, which is both more challenging, more universally applicable, and more hopeful and beautiful than we knew. The first thing we need to look at when we look at this particular passage is what are the starting points? So the Pharisees' starting point is the law of Moses. Did Moses say that, is it lawful for a man, lawful meaning the Jewish law, the law of Moses, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? What we need to remember about the law is, yes, it came from God, but the law was given from God to already sinning, already sinful human beings. The law was designed to adjust for error. The law is not an expression of this is an ideal world. The law is basically about this world is messed up. And so here's what you do to make it less messed up to start to reflect more what God had in mind. It's sort of a compensation for how, because humans were not doing or being God's will on earth as it is in the heavens. The law does not reflect God's original intention. Bill Henson is a Massachusetts local. He has he founded a ministry called Posture Shift and he wrote a book called Guiding Families for people who have loved ones who are somewhere in the LGBT plus community. Um, and he says, this passage shows how our drive, humans drive, for human intimacy compels us to enter unwise marriages or relationships that later fail and then declare our personal justifications. We all have this, ten we, we all have this need for human intimacy. We all have this tendency to enter into unwise or sinful relationships. When those fall apart, we try to justify ourselves. That's what the Pharisees are doing, and that is often what we try to do um, ourselves when we read passages like this. So that's the Pharisees' starting point, the law. Jesus' starting point is the beginning. Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. We also ask questions like the Pharisees, and we... When, when, we ask, when we have these conversations ourselves, which may be rare, but we might have them, we ask questions and we deliver answers from the starting point of the Pharisees, from the law starting point. But we could literally plug in any of our present-day questions about sexuality and gender, and Jesus would give us the same response that he gives here. So I could say, um, Jesus, doesn't the... <laughs> Doesn't the Bible tell us 
that the husband is supposed to rule over the wife. And Jesus could say, it was not this way from the beginning. Or someone could say, well, what about uh, same-sex relationships? And Jesus could say, it was not this way from the beginning. Or what about my trans family member or friend? It was not this way from the beginning. Or what about um, whatever? What, what about the Bible says that there are, there are these people in the Bible who are men after God's own heart who had multiple wives? Jesus could say it was not this way from the beginning. It wasn't. The whole reason Jesus showed up here was to restore God's original intention, the beginning. And that's why he just kind of blows off the law of Moses because he, he came to fulfill the law by restoring things to the beginning. At the beginning, humans had not yet sinned. God's will was being done on earth as it is in the heavens. As usual, Jesus is giving us more than we bargained for. He's giving us more than a checklist. Checklists can be uncomfortable, but they can be kind of convenient because we know where we stand. Jesus doesn't do that, though, maybe ever. In this brief passage, he actually gives us at least seven things that we can discern about God's original intent for human relationships from the beginning. Here's the first one. Marriage is between equal partners, one man and one woman, who became one new entity under God for life. In verse 4, he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? From the Pharisees' perspective and that day's culture and some cultures today, only men can initiate marriage, only men can initiate divorce. And so that's why this conversation has a very male-centered flavor, because that's the culture they were coming from. Women had little to no agency. That means they couldn't act on their own. They couldn't make their own decisions. They they couldn't. They didn't have a whole lot of initiative in these situations. And very often, in traditional views, even to this day, women are seen as a source of, of temptation. Jesus is challenging this. Jesus is saying, at the beginning, God made both men and women. At the beginning, before there was sin, before there was temptation, or before they were tempted, God made both of them. They're both created by the same God. They're both made in that same God's image. There are two distinct genders that God created to reflect God in the world. Note, both genders are perfectly capable of mistreating each other. There are women who abuse men. This is for sure true. But Jesus is speaking to a group of men from a culture where men have the advantage. And so he is challenging, quietly challenging that structure. He's not afraid to challenge women either. If you think about John 4 and the story of the woman at the well, he says, uh, you had five husbands, but now you're with a guy who's not your husband. He, he's not afraid to challenge, but the dominant problem in this particular society is men just lording it over women, taking advantage of women, and he is quietly challenging them. So haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the 
two will become one flesh. A couple things to notice about this. The Creator said this. If you go back and read this in Genesis, it's basically part of the narration. Jesus is saying, these are God's words directly. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. From the beginning, the man was supposed to leave his family for the woman. This is not how this works in traditional societies. It is not how it works. The woman goes and lives with the man and often is treated like a slave, sometimes by the mother-in-law, because the mother-in-law had that happen to her when she first got married. Jesus, though, modeled this. Jesus left his home in the heavens for his bride. Here's another thing to notice about that, just verse 5. One flesh, literally through sexual activity, which is intended to link the man and the woman physically first, but from there in all other areas. So, that implies that you willingly self-sacrifice for the good of the other, and you become one new entity. So, if you are really one new entity, if you're operating from on the terms of the beginning, you aren't going to harm your partner because that harms you. You're both equal players in the relationship. There is no benefit to you at all to have one person dominating the other. For what reason? It's weird because it says the creator said, for this reason, a man, what's the reason? Well, in Genesis 2, where this quote comes from, verse 23, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. They are equal in substance and value. And then it goes into verse 24. That is why the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They are made for each other. The man and the woman are made for each other. They are made to fit, to reflect God to each other, and the fullness of God outward together. This is a sign, a metaphor of our future oneness with Jesus. Two distinct and different entities inseparably united. So back into Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is why divorce is really serious. You're ripping a new ent- one entity apart. And we know this. Divorce really hurts, even if the marriage was atrocious. Brutal. Divorce is also brutal on many levels. And it's not just brutal for the couple. It's brutal for the kids. It's brutal for family members. Marriage is a powerful, powerful metaphor of what God intends, and so it it is intended to bless those around us. And when it is done in a godly way, it does. It ripples outward and blesses the community. And so when you break something that's that powerful, it does damage in outward ripples. Divorce is not what God intended from the beginning. That's the second 
of the seven principles that we can pull out of this passage. Divorce is not what God intended from the beginning. But sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage, especially when you are already in the covenant of marriage, is even worse. Verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So I have heard, you've maybe heard this question too, I hear this question somewhat frequently. Why is the church so obsessed with sex? And there's some validity to that question because I think that neither Catholic nor Protestant churches have done a great job teaching about sexuality or purity or gender or marriage or singleness or any of those things, um, in a lot of cases, the reason that the teaching has been bad is because it's been hypocritical. Um, it's been hiding bad patterns of exactly all of those things. But sex is the gift that God gave specifically to marriage to forge the one flesh union and to distinguish that particular metaphor of the kingdom. There are lots of metaphors of the kingdom. That act goes with that metaphor. And the reason why this is important in the Bible and important in the church is because throughout the Bible, sexual immorality, which equals sexual activity outside of marriage, is on the same level as idolatry. It is the symbol that God uses to talk about idolatry. And that is the problem between God and his chosen people, Israel, in the Old Testament. The prophets framed Israel's idolatry in terms of adultery against God. And the Pharisees would know this. So they're asking about morals. They're asking about one moral dilemma, specific moral dilemma. But Jesus is hinting to the Pharisees, your desire for an easy out to marriage to this one moral dilemma is actually a hint and a reflection of your history of unfaithfulness to God through idolatry. One way or another, divorce usually, if not always, implies adultery. This is where those of us with divorce in our lives, divorce that did not occur because of sexual immorality, this is where we tend to fixate and we look for some comfort or some loopholes. I said, I'm not divorced myself, but you know that my husband is. And so I have also sat with this passage and tried to look for some loopholes. Here's the thing. That's not actually the point. There are two implications here. One is specific to the Pharisees. The implication that Jesus is making to the Pharisees is a question. Did God divorce Israel for Israel's unfaithfulness? If this is the basis on which you can be divorced, did God divorce Israel? I'm not going to answer that question. I don't think I have an answer to that question. I've heard different people teach different sides of that. Um, but it's something to note because it helps us to understand just how significant this issue is spiritually. But I think the point and the implication to us is all have sinned sexually and fall short of the glory of God. Note this. Adultery slash unfaithfulness 
slash idolatry is implied in this regardless of the circumstances of divorce. Think about it. If what Jesus says is true, then either there was adultery before the divorce, which led to the divorce, or there's adultery after the divorce because somebody gets remarried. Either way, there's adultery. Either way, we are all sinners. So I'm going to just take a minute to note to... So I would guess that most of us in this congregation are majority sinners. That means we sin, but we are attracted to the opposite sex, and we identify with the gender that we were assigned at birth. Um, There are a lot of people that say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about LGBT issues. And it would, because the majority of us here probably... um, those aren't our struggles, we would be happy to not have to think about it. But it is an issue that our society wrestles with, and it's a little bit uh, naive and maybe arrogant of us to assume that there's nobody here that doesn't struggle with or at least know somebody that is part of that demographic. So, did Jesus teach about homosexuality? Not directly. Indirectly, in this passage, he is showing that sexual sinfulness and brokenness is sexual sinfulness and brokenness, no matter what form it takes. Yes, Jesus has made it clear here that from the beginning, God intended marriage to be one man and one woman, equal partners for life. But in the Bible and in human history, even heroes of the faith had multiple wives or took concubines that they weren't married to or didn't treat them well, they failed the from the beginning intentions of God. Here, in this passage, sexual immorality and divorce are linked. That is another failure of the from the beginning intentions of God. Gay sexual activity, we could argue from this, is failed from the intention, from the beginning intentions of God. Bill Henson says, is it really any different? Is this divorce adultery thing really any different than how LGBT people shift easily toward an affirming view to exercise the same desire to find a life partner. I think we're nearly identical. In Matthew 5, Jesus says lust equals adultery. Every single one of us, even if we lived to the letter of the law, which is what the Pharisees are trying to get at here, we've all failed the from the beginning intentions of God. So, no wonder the disciples say, okay, on these terms, better not to get married. But here's another truth that we can discern from this passage from what Jesus says. Celibate singleness for either gay or straight people is not a punishment. It is an equally valid, differently difficult calling. Verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. This is another indication that sex is for marriage only. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that tough to accept this. Might as well not marry them. Might as well not marry them. I can do whatever I want. Nope. (laughs) Not everyone can accept this word. But another truth, some expression of sexual and gender minorities 
as in people that are somewhere in the LGBT plus spectrum, have existed throughout human history. And Jesus is actually acknowledging this here, and he's not putting a value judgment on it. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. The existence of these minorities does not negate what Jesus describes as God's intention, male and female, from the beginning. Neither do our divorces negate God's intention, lifelong covenant commitment between man and woman, from the beginning. Neither does our sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage negate God's intention, sex between a covenant of husband and wife, from the beginning. Henson says, what God intended in the beginning is not what every single human experiences. It isn't. Right? And the final point from what Jesus says here is single people are not second-class citizens of the kingdom. He says, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Celibate singleness is another expression, another metaphor of doing exactly what Jesus told us earlier we must do for the kingdom. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. This state in life is a metaphor for the kingdom just as much as marriage. Jesus himself was a celibate single man. We might say saving himself from marriage. Honestly, to me, that is a more compelling motivator to wait. It, in my single life, it was a more compelling motivator to think in those terms than to think, the Bible says, don't have sex before marriage. Remembering Jesus waited was more compelling. So the Pharisees asked a moral question, and Jesus gave them morals. He gave them morals, he gave us morals, that none of us, married, single, gay, straight, male, female, non-binary, can live up to. And we were, Paul and I were talking about this this week, and he said, this is like the Sermon on the Mount. It's just these things that we can't, like, they're kingdom things that we can't actually do. And he's right. It is like that. In the next story, after this, in chapter 19, which we're actually not going to do a sermon on, because I did already preach about it here, um, the rich young ruler, the disciples find out that it's hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven, and they say, who then can be saved? And that's really similar to what they're saying here. Why should we even bother getting married then? It's too hard. How? It's impossible. The answer Jesus gives them about who can be saved, and the answer is the same answer that he gives them, basically, about marriage, and how impossible it is, and about how hard it is to accept singleness. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With man, this, being wealthy, is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With man, this, from the beginning, living with, in marriage or singleness in a godly way is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this, forgiveness, is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus showed us how it's done. He sacrificed himself. He lived among us in our sin-ridden lives. He 
does not give us a how-to in this passage for fixing the adultery, the idolatry that our sexual sin implicates us in. Because, just like there's one answer to all of our questions about this, from the beginning, God intended, there is also one antidote, and it is in the chalice. The blood of Christ, which frees us from all sin. In that chalice is reconciliation with God, which is the supernatural help that we need to live on his terms that he intended from the beginning. And there is also reconciliation with the people of God, which he wants because he wants us to help each other to live as we are supposed to in our singleness, in our marriage, more and more like God intended. It's a process. But we encourage each other. We support each other. We are in community with each other. We fellowship with each other. We encourage each other to live whatever state we're called into at that time as God intended from the beginning. The Pharisees were looking for a moral checklist, and we look for <clears throat> how-tos and maybe some loopholes, but God is looking for an intimate, growing relationship with us and between us. So with that in mind, we're going to go into communion. Communion is remembrance. Communion is remembrance of what our bridegroom has already done for us. He left his home in the heavens to become like his bride, to be with us. He lived among us in our broken reality, which is very, very, very far from the beginning intentions of God. He willingly faced the torture and death that are a result of our brokenness and sin, and he poured out his blood as the new covenant, his proposal of marriage to us. He showed what God intended marriage and faithfulness to look like from the beginning. Communion is also a sign of our unity with each other. It reminds us that the Spirit helps us to help each other live like the kingdom of God, live God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And finally, communion is the sign of our final union with him. You can kind of think about it like an engagement ring. The engagement ring reminds us that we are betrothed and we are promised to our divine bridegroom. It reminds us who we belong to. It's the motivation to keep going, to keep trying to live God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a re every time we take communion, it is a recommitment to letting God transform us into unified people who together will do the Father's will. So, if you have said yes to Jesus' proposal or you want to, I invite you to join us in the communion service. <laughs>